Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word that we might learn of you. And we thank you for giving us Jesus Christ, your word, that uh, we might learn of you not just from pen and ink, but from uh, flesh and blood. We might learn the ways in which um, you take seriously our sin and the ways in which you love us to save us from it. And we pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, you would be present in this time and be filling our hearts, stirring our hearts and stirring our affections, opening our eyes and our ears, that we might uh, be awakened and, and uh, see Christ and hear him and love him more truly. Uh, we pray that you would do that work to your glory, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We've got falling acorns. If you're lucky, it will land on your big toe. This is the uh, second of, of three sermons uh, intended to provide scriptural support for our church's intention to develop stronger relationships with the Hispanic community in Salem Springs as an expression of our vision to cultivate our presence in the city. We want Siloam Springs to reflect God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we're not satisfied with merely waiting for God to make that happen when at the, t at the end of time as we know it, he restores and renews all things. So we actually believe that God has given us a glimpse into heaven in places like Revelation 7, where people from every tribe and language are worshiping together as equals standing side by side before God. And he has given this, us this glimpse into heaven, we believe, precisely because he's inviting us to get started now on the work that he will fulfill and perfect in the future. And so we're accepting this invitation of his. We have even partnered with uh, NWA United in this effort. NWA United is a, a group of, of churches united in the gospel against racism for justice and all for the glory of God. And we want our presence in Siloam Springs to be felt as a people working towards a vision of the kingdom of God in Siloam Springs that embodies racial reconciliation and justice. It is an effort that will not be quick nor comfortable, but it is an effort driven by a vision of God's kingdom provided for us in scripture. Therefore, it's necessary and good. If you were not here last week, I'd encourage you to go back through the sermon archive on our website and listen to last week's sermon. In it, we acknowledge that the evangelical church in America, since its inception really, has prioritized the spiritual state of souls to the neglect of the physical state of the person to whom the soul belongs, and in so doing has preached a partial gospel that falls short of the gospel Jesus himself preached and leaves no earthly hope for the marginalized, the poor, as Jesus calls them. It's an uncomfortable realization that the fathers of the evangelical church in America often advocated for the further legal establishment of slavery in exchange for the right to preach the gospel to the slaves. As Chuck Hyde would say, that doesn't pass the say it out loud test. This morning, we're going to continue to allow scripture, though, to challenge us and, and make us uncomfortable. 
And discomfort really is one of the ways in which you can measure whether or not you are reading scripture on its own terms or on yours. If you read the Bible, let me start here actually. If you aren't reading the Bible, uh, you really need to. For it's, it's through the reading of scripture that God the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Most of our interactions with God consist in us speaking to him, right? Asking him to do things or even praising him and thanking him, which is essential speech for a relationship. But it's only one part of a relationship. The other necessary part, of course, is listening, letting God speak. And we do that whenever we read the Bible receptively. And the Holy Spirit who lives in us and inspired the human authors to write down or compile these texts applies the words to our lives. The author of Hebrews describes the Bible as living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible, through the activity of the Holy Spirit, has the capacity to confront and challenge and comfort you. And if only ever does one of those things for you, if you're only ever comforted by the Bible, and you're not reading it on its own terms, it should at times pierce you and cut you to the heart and lead you in repentance. Our Old Testament passage for this morning certainly is one of those confrontational stories for a Westerner to read, especially an American evangelical to read. I, I quoted from this book last week, but it, it's so good that I, I'm going to reference it again this morning. And I would recommend you to, to pick up a copy and read, read on your own or with a group of friends. The, the name of the book is called Divided by Faith by Michael Emerson and Christian Smith. And in this book, through hundreds of interviews, Emerson and Smith identify a particularly distressing reality that white evangelicals are the most individualistic people in America. More individualistic even than white people who don't identify as evangelical. And there are a number of reasons why this is the case. This isn't the, the time or the place to explain this sociological reality. Like I said, go buy the book and read it. But it's helpful to recognize this about ourselves because the extreme individualism characteristic of American evangelicals helps to explain why we bristle at the suggestion that we bear responsibility for racial injustice and oppression committed by the people who live before us, especially the founders of evangelicalism in America. At the suggestion that we are held accountable for the actions of our predecessors, we, we typically appeal to passages like Ezekiel 18 that say quite clearly that the soul who sins shall die. Right? The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. And this principle of individual accountability for our own sin, separate from the behavior of anyone else, shows up elsewhere too in Deuteronomy 24 and in Jeremiah 31. And this is absolutely true. We're judged based on our actions or lack thereof in our own lifetimes. But what an appeal to this principle often fails to recognize is that we're never born into a historical vacuum. History does not reset at our birth. And so the uncomfortable question presents itself. What if you are born into a position that was ill-gotten? 
and a social system that has developed over many generations that reinforces and preserves the original injustice while no longer requiring the current participants to possess the same malice and unrighteousness in their hearts that lived within their ancestors. What if you are born into a position that was ill-gotten from the first? What responsibility do you inherit at that point? Is it not your responsibility to repent of the sin and failures of the ones who came before you and do everything you can to undo their mistakes? And if you fail to do this work of repentance, are you not perpetuating, even unwittingly, the sins of your ancestors and thus, at that point, assuming their guilt on account of your inaction? These are really uncomfortable questions and a really uncomfortable situation to picture. But these are the questions that God forces us to consider when we read the story in 2 Samuel 21. The situation in 2 Samuel 21 is that David has assumed the throne after Saul's death. Saul was king before David. He assumes the throne after Saul's death, but there's famine in the land. There's no rain, and therefore there's no food, and it's been this way for three years. People are dying. And the people are suffering. And David, being their king, feels the, pr the pressure of providing for his people. So David approaches God in order to see if he can discover the reason that, that God is allowing this to happen to his people. And what David discovers is that God is holding David accountable for sins not that he committed, but sins which his predecessor Saul committed. As God explains at the end of verse 1, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. When the Israelites first moved into the land uh, promised to them, the, the Gibeonites were a people that were living there and they, they tricked uh, the Hebrews into forming a covenant with them so that, so that they'd be able to remain in the land and live there. The Hebrews were tricked into it, but... Even still, they had sworn and they were bound by their oath. But apparently, I say apparently because this is not recorded anywhere in Scripture, Saul broke the covenant with the Gibeonites and he attempted to kill them all. He attempted to wipe them out. He was apparently unsuccessful because in our story, there are some Gibeonites left for David to speak to. But Saul's death did change the fact that the Gibeonites had become a disadvantaged people, likely for generations. They had lost much at Saul's hand, and it was unlikely they would ever be able to recover. Saul had violated a covenant made with the Gibeonites, and even after his death, God was holding David and the people responsible for Saul's behavior by sending a famine on the land. David inherited the responsibility of repentance and reconciliation. David French points out that the reason for this obligation of repentance and atonement is obvious. The death of the offending party does not remove the consequences of their sin. Those who've been victimized still suffer loss, and if the loss isn't ameliorated in their lifetime, that loss can linger for generations. And one of the more striking realities of this story is that David does not balk at the idea of repenting for sins committed by his predecessors. 
He's not nearly as individualistic as we are. He does not appeal or complain that he did nothing wrong. And a large reason for David's acceptance of this generational responsibility is because there was a long tradition of repenting for the sins of their fathers within the Jewish culture. It was present there as a tradition because it was demanded of them in God by God in Leviticus 26. Confessing and repenting the sins of their fathers was a condition for covenant blessing. God says in verse 40, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me, then I will remember my covenant. And so throughout Israel's story, you see this very thing happening in Nehemiah 9, when the people had returned to the land after a long time of exile, we're told that they read the law and then they gathered together with fasting and with sackcloth on and with dirt poured on their, on their heads. And they stood and they confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. In Daniel 9, while the people were still in exile, Daniel spoke this prayer on behalf of the people. Oh Lord, he says, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the sins of our father, our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. David, Daniel, Nehemiah, they all understood that one is not born into a historical vacuum and that we inherit the responsibility that comes to us based on the sins of our ancestors. David had done nothing to offend the Gibeonites, nothing that we know of. And yet it was his responsibility to reconcile with them, to see that Saul's wrongs would be undone in their eyes and justice restored. David French uh, points out that the, the concept of enduring institutional responsibility is deeply embedded in American morality and thus deeply embedded in American law. And in order to, to help us see that there's a tradition of generational responsibility within America, just as there was within Israel, he suggests that we consider a more mundane situation. So let's consider that. Let's suppose, he writes, that an industrial plant has been recklessly polluting the groundwater for decades. CEO after CEO turn a blind eye to obvious production problems until the moment that the health effects in the community become dramatic and unmistakable. Reacting to public pressure, the board fires the CEO and senior leaders. Law enforcement files charges. The company then hires a new CEO. It's under completely new management. Are the new managers personally guilty of the prior leader's crime? Absolutely not. Do they have an institutional responsibility to compensate for the consequences of the prior leader's sins? Absolutely yes. How long does that responsibility last? Until they've done what they can reasonably do to repair the harm. This is exactly the position that David finds himself in in 2 Samuel 21. And he does exactly what French is saying is his inherited institutional responsibility. In verse 3, David approaches the Gibeonites and he asks them, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And in their response, you see how powerless they are. They say, We have no right to demand gold or silver 
or to demand the heads of anyone within Israel. They were a powerless people. David, by going to them, saying, what can I do? How shall I make atonement? Was giving them his power. He assumes his responsibility. And he asks the victims of his predecessor's sins, what would justice look like to you? And he admits something in his question to them that's important to point out. David asks, how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? David's acknowledging that a failure to repent and compensate for past sins, even sins not committed by us, affects the way people view the church. They don't bless it, but curse it for our lack of sorrow and penitence. But that cursing, he says, can potentially be turned to praise through the act of reconciliation. How can we make atonement so that people can bless the heritage of the Lord? But perhaps more important than the, the response it receives from, from people is the response that this, this assumption of, of generational responsibility in confession and repentance, the response it receives from God. David does what the Gibeonites consider just. And in verse 14, God responded to the plea for the land. He sent rain and he relented from his punishment. God was pleased. He was satisfied with David's behavior. We might even say he was glorified. This was the right thing to do in God's eyes. Now, the obvious assumption I am working from here is that there is a corollary between our situation and, and David's, right? That some wrong has been done by our predecessors that requires our repentance and work of atonement, which if, if left undone will perpetuate generational injustice and disadvantage and result in our assumption of our predecessor's guilt. And I'm assuming we have inherited generational responsibility. But let me tell you why I'm assuming that. Emerson and Smith in their, their book, Divided by Faith, demonstrate that the, the, uh, the financial implications of generational disadvantage. This statistic is a bit outdated, but as of 1994, the median income of blacks was 62% that of whites. This was essentially unchanged from nearly 30 years earlier. The median income of blacks in 1967 was 59% of that of whites. And lower average incomes likely lead to greater poverty rates, they write, and indeed this is the case. Whereas less than one in 11 non-Hispanic whites fall below the poverty line, nearly one in three blacks do. And for a, a more updated statistic in 2016, the net worth, which is your assets subtracted, you subtract your debts from your assets, your net, the net worth of the average African-American family was $17,150. The net worth of the average white non-Hispanic family was $171,000, 10 times as much. And sticking with the theme of financial disparity, they also point out that the median net financial assets, which is essentially money that isn't tied up in a, in a house or a car after you subtract all your debts, the, the median net financial assets for college-educated whites are nearly $20,000, so $20,000 of cash available after you subtract your debts and money that's tied up in a house and a car. 
For college-educated blacks, $175. Without an asset pillar to stand on, they write, the black middle class relies almost exclusively on income and job security. A downturn in the economy or a change in marital status quickly sends significant numbers of the black middle class into lower classes. Whites with their far superior assets are able to survive such disruptions with little overall class status change. In this case, it's true that when white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. And the disparity also bleeds into healthcare along with a number of other areas. Emerson and Smith cite a study conducted by two physicians in Massachusetts examining all circulatory disease and chest pain patients admitted to hospitals in Massachusetts. Examining patients by age, race, and income, the researchers found that whites were 89% more likely to be given coronary bypass surgery than blacks. A, a nationwide study of Medicare patients revealed an even higher disparity. White Americans were three times as likely as black Americans to receive this surgery. Other areas of health also diverged by race. For instance, African-American babies die at a rate over twice the frequency of white babies. And African-American mothers are four times more likely to die in childbirth than white Americans. And there are a number of factors at play in all these statistics behind these numbers. But before we suggest any, any solutions or offer any explanations as to why this is so, there's a critical step that must first be taken. David takes it. We would do well to follow in his way. God was pleased with David's step. The next step is to go to the oppressed and listen. Why do such disparities exist from their perspective? And what looks like justice to them? The reason this is so crucial is because Emerson and Smith point out that the, the two categories of people that are furthest apart in their proposals for solutions to the problem are white evangelicals and black evangelicals. Furthest apart. We share a common tradition within the Christian faith, and yet we are further apart than whites and blacks who don't share a common faith. Again, as Chuck Hyde would say, that doesn't pass the say it out loud test. We're not listening. So we propose solutions that are individualistic and interpersonal, that do not require financial or cultural sacrifice when black evangelicals are telling us that the problems are at least, at least partially structural, and it's going to take a change to the status quo to bring about real change. David did what the Gibeonites asked of him. He gave them power in order to accomplish justice from their perspective, the perspective of the person who was actually wronged and powerless. We must do the same. Now, I recognize that in all this, I've been talking primarily about the, the black-white disparity. A large reason is that that's been the majority of the focus and research has been in that relationship. But there's a version of this that exists between Anglos and Hispanics. To my shame, I do not know what that story is for. I'm hopeful that our NWA United Commission will teach me that story so that I don't perpetuate it in my ignorance. In order that we might 
not perpetuate the generational wrongs we were born into. We're, we're going to go to our Hispanic neighbor and we're going to ask them how we need to repent. How can we make atonement? It's our generational responsibility. And in doing so, God will be satisfied and pleased. God will be glorified. And the world will bless the church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.